invite Ray Sanchez to come bring us the word. Good evening. If you'd like to turn to Matthew chapter 26, we'll start there. The message tonight is Supper and a Song. Matthew 26:30, we read, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Let's pray. Father, we desire to hear from you tonight. You would teach, pray, Lord, that you would reveal yourself to us. You would teach us. You would equip us. You would uh, convict us and comfort us as your word is preached. We thank you, Father. We thank you, Son. We thank you, Holy Spirit. Amen. So our text, Matthew 26, 30, the one we just read, is at the very end of Jesus' three-year public ministry. And we're going to approach our, our task and our time tonight in, in, in three steps, you might say, or three parts. First, we're going to discuss Passover. Second, we're going to discuss the Lord's Supper. And third, we're going to discuss this very hymn. We're going to de- discover what it is that Jesus and his 12 disciples sang. So Passover, the Lord's Supper, and then this very hymn that they sang at the end. So that's a tall task, and we have a short time. So I'm going to speed through some of this. So from the very moment, the miraculous moment at the wedding, and then the reading of the scroll of Isaiah, to the upper room discourse and the high priestly prayer. Jesus lived and served the very creatures He created for three years. And as He prepared to bring thousands of years of redemptive history to its apex, as He prepared to fulfill many of the Old Testament prophecies through the work on the cross or or His passive obedience as theologians call it, as He came to that rugged cross to bear the wrath of the Father, He one last time drew together with His twelve disciples in the upper room in Jerusalem and He came to celebrate Passover festivals. The Jews of Jesus' time celebrated many feasts and festivals. And the, the three most important or the three major festivals were Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. So the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. And the Passover feast was the most important then as it is now to to practicing Jews. And it was instituted by God. And I'm going to take the time this morning to read from Exodus chapter 12 and 13 so that we really have a, a deep grasp of what Jesus was doing on that evening, what he was celebrating. 
So this is Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 through 14. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roast it, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you, on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. So the Lord establishes Passover. A very familiar story to us. Passover or Pesach was instituted, as we read there, as a memorial, as a celebration of Israel's deliverance from Egypt, from slavery in Egypt. And in Jesus' time and today, the meal began with the family eating their own Passover or Seder. In the Jewish tradition, Passover is known as the season of our freedom. God freed his people who were incapable of freeing themselves. We know this story well. We also know that this newfound freedom wasn't the conclusion to the story, wasn't it? They still went through the Red Sea. They still were called to covenant at Mount Sinai. They left slavery to be bound into covenant, into the Mosaic covenant with God. The ancient Passover celebrate it was was truly indeed a, a celebration of freedom, a freedom from slavery. But it was not freedom in in the modern sense of the word. It was freedom in the Jewish sense. It was freedom in the biblical sense. It was freedom, as the Jews often repeated. It was freedom that was freedom, uh, as they would describe it. They would say that it was the yoke of the Torah. 
That's true freedom, to be yoked to the law. We would say, I think, that freedom is found in the yoke of the gospel. So Jesus ate this prescribed ritual, this communal meal. He ate it on Thursday with his disciples in the upper room, and it was the evening before his crucifixion. The meal is often referred to as the Last Supper. And so already you might have in your mind Da Vinci's Last Supper supper painting with Jesus in the middle and the six disciples on each side arguing over who would betray him. Sitting at a table in very tall chairs. So we know, just as an aside, we know that in Jesus' time, of course, they weren't sitting around a table like that. They would sit and they would lounge. They would sort of be leaning to the side. And this is why we read in one gospel story that John leaned back to ask Jesus a question. Leaned into his breast, even, to ask him a question. Mark says, while they were reclining at the table eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. One who is eating with me, Mark 14. So Da Vinci's picture is wrong on on just that account alone. No sitting at the table. Of course, it's not the point. And we need to dig in uh, much deeper here. Jesus wasn't simply participating in a Passover meal, was he? He was celebrating Passover. But as we'll see, and as we pass over, we've read, and as we know, it was more than Passover. He had done Passover for about 30 years of his life. Certainly. But this was his last Passover. Jesus, in this passage, was pointing to his fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. He was pointing to his becoming the sacrificial Passover lamb. He was the lamb. He was the unblemished lamb. And he would state in a very succinct and yet very complete way that Passover was but a shadow of the death he would die for his people. What Passover showed and what he would sing about and what they would participate in and what the Jews had always participated in was but a shadow of the death that he would die for his people, of the redemption and the deliverance that he would purchase for his people. Now this sermon tonight is not the sermon to distinguish the, the four historical and traditional views and the debate surrounding them. But I will say that there is a view called transubstantiation, which is the Roman view. Consubstantiation, which is the Lutheran view. And I would say the more broadly held evangelical view might be called the Zwinglian view, which is a, a memorial view. But the Reformed and Presbyterian view is a sometimes referred to as the dynamic or spiritual presence view. We believe that the Lord's Supper, just as Pastor Brad said this morning, I think very eloquently, he said that the Lord's Supper is immensely special. It is, in fact, a sacrament. And it's a sacred meal that Christ instituted. He took Passover. And he instituted from it a sacred meal to enjoy intimate fellowship with him as we eat. The reason to drink it. And it is a serious thing. 
hence the, hence the reason to fence the table. It is a serious thing indeed to partake of the supper and a serious thing indeed to misuse it. And so I want to consider the Lord's Supper in three, three ways which will help frame uh, what, what, what the Lord's Supper is and what, uh, Jesus, how Jesus reconstituted it, you might say. So firstly, firstly, this is Luke 22. You're welcome to turn to any of these passages, but I'll read them as well. Luke 22. First, we want to say that the Lord's Supper is a remembrance. It's a time of remembrance. Listen to Luke 22:19, And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. It was a time of remembrance. Instituted for all time for us today to look back and remember what Christ did. So as the Israelites remembered and proclaimed and praised and gave thanks of God's deliverance out of Egypt. So we look back at God's great work of deliverance. Every time we eat the bread and drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Second, we partake in a communal fellowship during the Lord's Supper. We are refreshed by God's means of grace and we are nourished and strengthened through the spiritual presence of Christ. Again, the text says, and when he had given thanks, he broke the bread and said, this is my body, which is for you. And he goes on to say, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my so the Kim Riddlebarger writes, The essence of the sacrament is found in Christ's promise to be spiritually present with his people. And in terms of a communal fellowship, all of this was to happen in the church. In fellowship with one another. So listen to Paul as he sets the stage for the instruction on taking the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11. In, in verses 17, 18, and 20, three times Paul says this, when you come together. He repeats it, when you come together. And then he repeats it, when you come together. And the, the second time that he repeats it, in verse 18, he adds, for when you come together as a church. And so we partake in communal fellowship with one another, with Christ and in his spiritual presence and with one another. The Lord's Supper is this perpetual fellowship and display of unity in the visible church among believers. It is a perpetual fellowship and communion with Christ and his church and among believers. For Jesus is spiritually with us. And we are with each other in unity as we partake of the sacrament in public worship. Thirdly, just as a way to, again, frame the Lord's Supper, we have said that it's a, a commemoration or a, a remembrance. We have said that Christ is spiritually present and it's a communal fellowship with Christ and with one another. 
And thirdly, we are to examine ourselves. We are to test ourselves and partake in a worthy manner. So again, hear, hear Paul on this point. Whoever, therefore, eats the concerning the or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself. Then, and so, eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And so that though it is a, a communal fellowship and Christ is spiritually present, and though it is a remembrance of what he has accomplished for us on the cross, we are yet to discern the meal. We are to partake in a worthy manner. We are to examine oneself as we come to the table. It's necessary and it is required. And then Matthew and Mark both record this verse that I read earlier. Verse 30 of 26. It's also in Mark. It's the exact same phrase, the exact same words in each text. So they had partaken of the Lord's Supper together. And before they departed, perhaps down the ravine, up to the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives, before his arrest and trial and crucifixion, they had sung a hymn. They had sung a hymn. Isn't that, isn't that beautiful to think of? That they sung a hymn together. Now, traditionally, Psalm 113 through 118 are known as the Hallel Psalms or praise Psalms. And they were sung, either all of them or portions of them or verses of them, during Passover or at the very end of Passover. So they were traditionally done. And it was likely that Jesus and his disciples sang these Psalms. And isn't that beautiful? We can go to the text of the New Testament and see our Lord and see him just in praises from the word of God. Just as his chosen people had done for centuries. Now, I don't know if Jesus, Jesus could carry a tune. You know, I don't know if that was part of his. Uh, if, if, if he wasn't sinful. So maybe you could if you're not if you're not a sinner, you can carry a tune. I'm not sure. But I do know that he sang from these very verses in all likelihood. I do know that he appears to have sung a cappella, though it's possible there could have been some instruments. He sang songs of thanksgiving, didn't he? What were those songs? These psalms that we're about to read and work our way through, 113 to 118, these are the songs that point to him. These are the songs and, and hymns that the Israelites sang about their deliverance and their freedom from slavery. And yet Christ is singing them, knowing that it's him that's going to bring true freedom. That they're really about him and his work on the cross. His disciples did not fully understand that point. They did not understand that he was not simply singing of the deliverance of 
the Israelites from Egypt. He was singing of his own victory through his blood of the covenant. So we're going to take a journey through Psalm 113 to 118. And by God's providence, we read Psalm 113 tonight, didn't we? And this was, we didn't figure this out beforehand. Psalm 113 to 118. I'm going to give you an overview, but a more in-depth overview. And then I want to bullet point each one of these. And then we'll conclude. This said Psalm 113 earlier, and it's a praise to the Lord. It starts this section, if we could, we could think of this, every one of these psalms as a, as a whole in, in, in one way. Right? These are the psalms that they, that they sang together at the time of Passover to sing of their deliverance. So think of them distinctly, but think of them as a whole. And Psalm 113 starts as a praise to the Lord. And the essence of this psalm, I believe, is that it's a praise to the eternal self-existent one, the great I AM. You see, the Lord in all caps. That I AM that Jesus himself claimed to be. Many times, the Gospel of John. And then Psalm 114 was traditionally sung on the eighth day of Passover. So again, you had a Passover feast. Then you had a celebration of seven days, the the Feast of the Unleavened Bread that followed it. This was celebrated as a remembrance. This seven days, this Feast of the Unleavened Bread was celebrated as a remembrance of the 40 years of wilderness wandering. And in verse 1 and 2, you can see here in in, uh, chapter 114, verse 1 and 2, they would have sung, just as it says here, when Israel went out from Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people of strange language. Judah became his sanctuary. Israel, his dominion. This psalm pictures God Almighty redeeming his people so that he may dwell with them. In Jesus, the the veil of redemptive history has been pulled away. It's all leading to this point. And God literally takes on human flesh Jesus literally is the image of the invisible God who dwelled with his people, not in the fire and the cloud in the wilderness for 40 years, not using those, uh, not the fire, but natural, but supernatural elements, not the fire and the cloud, but Jesus came in skin and in bones. In Psalm 115, then, if they would have sung through, we would have read, they would have sang, and, and we are reading that God is covenantally faithful. His steadfast love, it says multiple times, endure forever. Here, the nations, the unbelieving nations, scoffed at Israel because they, verse 2, had an unseen God. But our response is the response that we read here. That he does all that he pleases. Verse 2. God is sovereign. And we, as you can see in verse 118, we, whatever the scoffing nations do, we will praise, 
We will bless the Lord. Excuse me. We will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. And the psalm ends with a praise the Lord or a hallelujah. In Psalm 116, 13, we read of the cup of salvation. See that there? It says, I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. And probably if you look in your Bible study notes there, it probably indicates that this cup of salvation needs to be contrasted with the cup of wrath. Psalm 75, 8 says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours out from it all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. So the word and the concept of cup in scriptures normally used to indicate God's wrath, just as it did it there in Psalms. James. Well, remember in Matthew 20, the mother of James and John were. In, uh, came, the mother of James and John came to Jesus and tried to make the case that her two sons should be on either side of the Lord in the coming kingdom. And this is how Jesus answered. He said, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? Their answer was, we are able. And he said to them, you will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. That's Matthew 20, 22 and 23. The cup in verse 22 is speaking of the impending suffering and death of Jesus right? as the sin bearer. Nobody can drink that cup. The wrath of God will be poured out on him. And even in Gethsemane, Jesus pleads and prays, if it's possible, take this cup away. But it's interesting, Jesus' response in verse 23, he says, you will drink my cup. Not the cup, but you'll drink my cup. And that's interesting. I think this is akin to saying, yes, you will share my cup. My cup of suffering. Or as Paul put it, the fellowship of suffering that all believers must endure. But it will not be the full force of God's wrath. It will not be the full cup of wrath that only the sin bearer alone could bear. It's not that cup. And so again, Jesus sang around the table these psalms and these hymns just as he was about to be arrested and on trial, just as he was about to beat, be beaten in the uh, crown of thorns pressed around his brow, just going to be poor eye of the crucifixion with God's wrath going to be poured out on him in just a few short hours. He's saying about lifting up the cup of salvation. Psalm 117 reminds us that Jesus came to tear down the dividing wall. Very short, shortest chapter in the Bible, I believe, I read. Jesus is going to tear down that dividing wall. All nations, those scoffing nations we just read of, we just sang about. All nations are to come. All peoples are made in the image of God. 
Or as Matthew said in the Great Commission, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, all people groups. In Psalm 118, which is the final hymn in this Passover grouping, I want you to turn to verse 22 and 23. Would Jesus and those 12 disciples, or perhaps there were 11 at that point, would they have sung, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. The New Testament is replete with this passage, an explanation of this passage, a reference to this passage. You're familiar with the parable of the tenants. The son was rejected, right? The, 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 the master gave over the land and the tenants were to care for the land. The servants came. They killed the servants. So the master sent the son. And what did they do to the son? They killed the son. The master came back and judged those wicked tenants. But in that passage, Jesus himself in that says that He's the cornerstone. He was the son in that story. He was identifying as the very cornerstone prophesied in the Old Testament and here with his disciples singing of it. And so in the upper room, Jesus is singing that he, the master's only begotten son, is the very cornerstone. So let me in bullet point format recap these psalms. I realize this is an unusual way to approach the text. But I think this is helpful for us to understand Passover. Why was Jesus there? How he instituted the Lord's Supper and its obvious connection to to Passover. And the scripture is very clear that they sung. And if the tradition was to sing these hymns, in all likelihood they did. So in chapter 113, there's an opening praise and magnification of God. Hear, hear this. Listen to this as the story is told. Right? Think about the, 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 the gospel as we, the gospel unfolding as we think about this. Chapter 113, opening praise and magnification of God. Chapter 114 recounts the, the Exodus story, including the parting of the Red Sea in verse 3 and the parting of the Jordan River in verse 4. I had already mentioned the wilderness wandering. Chapter 115 provides a strong response to the unbeliever or pagan and gives a defense of God, our shield. Chapter 116 becomes very personal and it turns to this first person singular, I. It's like a personal devotion. It's a, it's a, it's a personal prayer. It's my prayer and my deliverance and my walk and my hallelujah. And chapter 117 returns to a hymn of praise and is a call to those who deny God and are visible covenant community. So it's a call to them. Come. And then chapter 118, a praise and glory are given to the one true God for He is good and His steadfast love endures forever. He is our cornerstone. 
Jesus was singing his story. Jesus was singing the story of his glory and his mercy and his people's redemption. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are arrested. They're held overnight, and then they must make a defense before the Sanhedrin. And when they do, and the Sanhedrin was sort of the high court, and when they do, Peter, it says, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, I can imagine, right? They're on trial, just as Jesus was not long before. They're arrested overnight, likely to be killed, but God delivers them. But they did not know that. They go. They just witnessed Jesus going through this fake trial. They watched him murdered, but then they watched him resurrected. So they go before this high court, and Peter responds, filled with the Holy Spirit, rulers of the people and elders. If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, again, they had healed him. By what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And then he goes on to say, And there is a witch and no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The Jews of Jesus' time and many Jews today, they sing these Egyptian hymns, as they're called, these praise hymns. Psalm 113 through 118. But at the Last Supper, the last supper Jesus would have in that manner with his disciples. Jesus reconstituted this Passover and he filled it with Christian fulfillment. He said, this is my body and this is my blood. I mean, there's, there's weeks of sermons on each one of those words. This. Is it is my body and blood. And then he sang. He sang songs glorifying himself. He sang songs that were written of him. He sang songs that identified him as the Redeemer, the cornerstone that identified him as the exclusive way of salvation even. Jesus sang on that solemn night that we would be free to obey the gospel. That once for all, his people who were incapable of freeing themselves would truly be free. And we sing that. We celebrate that in the Lord's Supper. And we should sing now. We should sing now in communal fellowship. Let us sing now of the chief cornerstone.
Let us sing of the unblemished lamb on the cross of Calvary. And let us sing of the wrath, the cup of wrath that the Savior drank for us that was poured out on Him. Let us sing of the victory over death and sin as we consider the resurrection. Let us sing of the cup of salvation, one for our deliverance. Let's pray.